and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Liam Clifford. And I am your co-host, Francesco Colosimo. And today we're here with Xavier Borsato, a master's student with the Health and Rehabilitation Sciences here at UWO. Xavier, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure to be here. Great. So we've got lots to talk about in only a short amount of time, so let's get cracking. How about you just... Uh, tell us a little bit about your research and what you're looking at at the moment. For sure. So the main focus of my research right now is on men who have experienced intimate partner violence from a female partner. And to do that, I've been interviewing service providers from several different organizations in London and Toronto. Um, some of the main goals of the research right now are to see if service providers experience any forms of stigma for working with these men because it's something that's relatively stigmatized in society if you're a male victim of intimate partner violence or domestic abuse. Um, and then we're also looking at what some of the barriers are for men in terms of seeking help from abuse-related organizations or seeking help from health services when they're in these types of situations and what we can kind of do to create more of a conversation and awareness around that issue. Xavier, that's a, a really interesting take on domestic violence. Um, you know, typically a lot of the research and a lot of the attention is um, turn towards, you know, domestic violence against women, which is, you know, a really significant issue as well. So um, I think it's really cool that you're researching it towards men. Um, and I guess one of the questions I was thinking of is, what are the, you know, types of domestic abuse that you most commonly see that are committed um, towards men? Right. Um, so one thing is, yeah, definitely this has been a historically uh, but female issue. Um, violence against women has been a huge issue. I'm just trying to look at it in a different light and look at a specific subset um, of people who experience abuse. But when it comes to men experiencing violence, what we find is it's often not physical. Um, when it is physical, it looks a lot different than when a man is abusing a woman. So we tend to see more violence with a weapon, but more so than any type of physical abuse, um, it tends to be more emotional, psychological, and manipulative. Um, that could be putting the man down, kind of breaking his confidence, whether that's in his personal life or his work life. In really extreme scenarios of abuse, we can see female partners sometimes trying to turn the man's friends or family against him um, by doing things such as claiming that they're the ones who are abused in the relationship um, or trying to limit the man's social circle so that he has less areas to go to get out of that abusive situation. Uh, those are in very extreme areas of violence, but generally it's manipulative, it's coercive, and it's emotional rather than physical. And I think that raises a really interesting point that we've we've obviously seen during the Trump administration, this sort of idea of gaslighting um, and how um, those who are committing the act um, are acting as if they're the ones who are being victimized. Um, so I think that's a really interesting point. Now, you've sort of alluded to how these um, this abuse manifests itself. What are the effects you're finding it has on the men themselves? There's a really large array of effects and it really depends on how the man decides to cope with the abuse. So one of the biggest themes that we see, one of the biggest, most significant things we see is that men tend to remain silent about the abuse they're experiencing. So they won't talk to their family, they won't talk to their friends, they won't talk to a healthcare provider. And that can have a lot of different implications. So if your way of coping with that is kind of keeping it within yourself, we start to see this dissociation. 
um, where they almost put up a bit of a barrier and say, I'm not going to let anything hurt me anymore. You know, no negative emotions are going to get through to me. But as a result of that, a lot of times these men also have a difficult time experiencing positive emotions. So if they leave that abusive relationship, it's hard for them to open up to a new partner or friends and be vulnerable again because they're fearful of what could occur. Um, sometimes you see people self-medicating, whether that be with alcohol or more serious uh, illicit drugs. Um, and that self-medication can lead, not always, but sometimes into addiction. Um, and then obviously, sometimes you have the route of self-harm. So you have some angle towards self-harm and suicide in the very extreme cases. But um, a lot of the times, it's this dissociation and this hunkering down where the men don't want to show that they're being hurt or abused because that isn't the you know, masculine thing to do. And masculinity and our concepts of masculinity pay, play a really big role in that and the way people tend to cope with the abuse. Yeah, Xavier, you bring up the great point of, and, you know, kind of con a concerning point about how, you know, a good chunk of victims, male victims who experience domestic violence, they may internalize, you know, some of the feelings that they're experiencing or, you know, they may not seek help or, or even tell anyone for um, a certain number of reasons. Um, is there, you know, any statistics or insight about you know, the proportion of male victims um, who experience domestic violence that don't seek help at all, you know, the proportion of victims to those that um, seek, you know, mental health help or help from a physician or something like that? Mm -hmm. um, personally, I'm not aware of any statistics about the percentage of men who will seek help for abuse-related incidents, but that also speaks to a bit of a broader knowledge gap in the field. So depending what number you look at, uh, it's between one in six men and sometimes much higher who, who experience abuse. But we never see, there's no statistics right now that are you know, greater than one in six men, like one in four or one in two. Um, and part of the reason for that is this underreporting, where men won't go to police services or social services to say that they're being abused. So we have a hard time seeing how many men are actually experiencing that. And with that type of underreporting we're getting, it's hard to get an idea of how many of the men who are actually being abused, because we don't know how many actually are, how many of those men are actually going and seeking help rather than just staying silent. So it's really hard to get an accurate figure on that in the context of the literature right now. And, and you know, I think, like you said, that that highlights um, a more interesting discussion to have in that because there's this whole, there's this need to address what is, what is, I guess, within that whole, so to speak. Now, I mean, the statistics, they, they sound at least initially alarming, right? And, you know, kind of connecting it to, to your latter point on, on, on how masculinity sort of shapes men's perceptions of what this domestic abuse violence looks like within a relationship. Um, how, what, what sort of societal factors contribute to how they perceive, you know, what a relationship is supposed to look like and, and how, you know, that might inhibit them from understanding that they are victims? Right. Um, you're actually probing a really great question there with this ability to recognize your abuse in the way society structures our view of relationships, right? So our typical traditional perspective of a relationship is that the man is the breadwinner um, or the one with power in the relationship. Uh, they're supposed to be strong, they're supposed to be tough, not emotional. These are all obviously stereotypes and to some extent they're true and other extents they're not, but uh, we see that changing. Um, 
But that's kind of the idea. And for men who are raised with a very heteronormative masculinity, these are the ideas they tend to hold about what they should be in a relationship. When we see a man suffering abuse at the hands of a woman, it goes against all those concepts that they have kind of been raised with, right? The power is no longer in their hands and it's in their partner's hands and they're experiencing feelings that they've never really thought they would encounter before. And with that, um, you start to get men not understanding what's really going on. And one of the really interesting things is when these men talk about their violence in the context of their relationship, they almost never use the words abuse or violence when they're talking to social services or healthcare. It always tends to be, oh, it hurt or it didn't feel good or she was rude or angry, but it's almost never addressed as abuse. And that's because as a society, we don't really talk about men as the ones who are abused. We tend to talk about men as the abusers. So it's very difficult to frame that you're the one who's being abused when that is the social norm that you kind of grow up with in media and just, you know, when you're talking to your friends and whatnot. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you bring up about how you know, it may not even cross the mind of some of the victims to even seek help because, you know, they've been brought up in such a way that they don't even see themselves as victims. And therefore, you know, they don't see that they should get any help or tell anyone about, you know, some of the experiences that they're, that they're feeling. Um, and, you know, if, if someone was experiencing, if a male was experiencing abuse, um, how would they get help? Like, where would they go? Would they go to a psychiatrist or a physician? Right. Um, one of the entryways we see for men who are experiencing abuse is crisis lines. And that's generally only when the abuse becomes extremely severe. So we're talking like the man feels like his life is threatened or oftentimes that his kids are in harm's way. So um, looking at the man's children is, is a way that we start to see uh, them come forward about their abuse because they're worried about them in that environment. But uh, crisis counseling, whether that be through a hospital or a general care provider, um, is one area where we see men to start, start to come forward. We don't tend to see men reaching out to domestic abuse related services as often as we would like to because they hold a perception that these services are not for men, uh, they're for women. And if you look at, you know, you go to the website of a lot of domestic abuse organizations, they are mainly targeted towards females, which is fair because violence against women is where the domestic abuse sphere originated. And that's totally fine, but we tend not to see uh, services directed specifically towards men. And with that lack of services directed towards them, they don't really know where they should reach out for help. Um, I mean, you can take some organizations in London, for example, like ANOVA, they are all gender inclusive. They provide services to men if men reach out for services, not so much crisis counseling because they don't deal with that so much, but they'll refer them. Um, but when men think of ANOVA, they think of uh, services that are not meant for them. So that's it's a barrier to people seeking help. The one other area that we see men kind of reaching out frequently is in addiction services. So if they go to Alcoholics Anonymous or another drug anonymous group for addiction, um, sometimes you'll see them start to open up about an abuse they were experiencing, and then they can be referred to the appropriate counseling services kind of through there. I would like to make a question. Uh, I'm Laura, the producer here. <laughs> so uh, I would like to know that given that, according to what you're saying, the reason why people like why men are not reaching out 
is because it's hard for them to recognize uh, that they're being abused. But this is more like a society problem, right? Like the way men are perceiving themselves in heterosexual relationships. So I wonder what, what will you think will be a good approach in order to solve that problem? So what should be done from society or from educa an educational perspective in, in order to solve that problem? It's a really good question, and it's a difficult question to answer because the biggest thing we could do is just talk about it. You know, just talk about the fact that men do experience abuse, that it's, you're not alone if you do experience abuse. Other people experience it as well. And if we start having that conversation more in social media, in just, you know, within friend groups, in the general public, um, that would really go a long way into helping men feel less isolated and more like they can reach out for help to peers or social services. But it's a difficult thing to do because we're talking about these masculine ideals and heterosexual relationships. If you start to put a poster up that shows a man being abused by a woman, let's say, for example, um, a lot of men, especially men who are you know, more streetwise, will kind of, they want to identify with that because the poster looks weak. It makes the man look weak per se. And they will say, you know, that's not me. I don't identify like that. And then they won't read up to those services. But if you make it so the poster shows a man in an abusive situation and he doesn't look like he's in any harm, they're also not going to want to reach out to that because then it doesn't seem like it's being taken seriously enough. So it's this very fine line um, when you're dealing with masculinity like that. And that's just something that has to be a general societal shift, right? And we're starting to see more people talking about um, different areas of masculinity and different ways that you can be a masculine man without that traditional heteronormative perspective, but that takes a long time for those ideals to shift, uh, especially when you're looking at services, like service injuries and stuff. It takes about seven years to change, change culture within an organization. Um, so that's a long time to make that shift to something that is more inclusive of, of male survivors as well. So it's hard to reach out, but the biggest thing we can do is talk about it. You know, we have, uh, like on social media a couple of days ago, there was like uh, men's health or mental health awareness for men or whatever. People were sharing lots of different posts and that's great, but we don't do that the other 364 days of the year where we're talking about, you know, the, that men can experience, you know, different mental illnesses, that men can experience these emotional traumas. Um, the rest of the year, it's not something that is spoken about to generate awareness. And that's probably the biggest thing anyone can do to help these men feel like they can reach out for help. And, you know, it, it's while you know these these things don't happen overnight it's 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 obviously super important to get the ball rolling now oftentimes when we discuss uh domestic violence in regards to women um there's conversation about what men can do to not contribute to that and like to not perpetuate those those awful notions of what an abusive relationship is is there any uh, advice or support you would offer women in this regard and, and how they can contribute to um, healthy relationships with their with their heterosexual partners? Um, definitely not specifically my field, but when it comes into a relationship with a man uh, and we're talking about these ideals and these social perceptions, I think it's really important to allow your partner to be emotionally open with you, right? to listen to their feelings and what they're going through. I mean, in any relationship, but when we're talking about men and, and these issues with masculinity, um, when they do decide to speak up, it's important to be receptive to that. 
because otherwise it's going to kind of reinforce that idea or that dissociation that you know they're not going to let those feelings get through to them anymore um, so i think one of the biggest things anyone can do in a relationship is just allow their partner to be open and honest about their feelings and their emotions because um, if they can communicate that they're more likely to have a happier and healthier relationship um, but I don't have a whole lot more that I feel comfortable uh, speaking about on that regard. Yeah. So, you know, obviously there's a gap in literature and just a gap in, you know, in knowledge in general on this topic. And it, and it appears that, you know, potential solutions revolve around changing culture and, and, you know, kind of reversing stigma, which we all know is a, a really, really hard thing to do. Um, and then, you know, maybe potential strategies um, in which you can get perpetrators of domestic violence to kind of, you know, maybe stop doing that or, you know, kind of increase communication between um, those partners and so on. Um, you know, in your experience, have you heard of any things that can be done from a healthcare perspective that could, um, you know, possibly contribute to the solution or just maximize the aid that can be given to some of the victims? Mm -hmm. um, well, one of the biggest issues on, on the healthcare side or the social service side is that there are almost no services that, that are exclusive or advertised for men to access. Um, if you look at most domestic abuse related organizations, they do not target male victims of abuse. Um, there's organizations that are there for perpetrators, male perpetrators of abuse to get help for those behaviors, but in regards to recovering for their abuse, there's very little. Um, outside of one organization in Toronto called the Centre for Men and Families, which has started doing peer counselling for male survivors of domestic violence, um, I am not personally aware of any other services that are directed specifically for men. And that uh, the CCMF is, is very new. It's only been around for a small number of years and they're still growing their capacity. So one of the biggest things that could be done is directing more funding into services that um, are there for men to access because the CCMF struggles with that substantially. So if we put more funding into those types of services, that would be great, but government dollars are hard to compete for. Um, the biggest thing we could do is to go to those services that are gender inclusive and have them add more to their website and their social media that is that specifically talks about male survivors. Because if they're open for any gender to access and for any gender to access their services, but um, they claim that, but then their website talks very little about providing services to straight male victims or transgender victims or even gay victims, um, those people are less likely to reach out. So specifically targeting those populations in existing services is probably the quickest way that we could help people feel more comfortable with reaching out. But other than that, it's just establishing and broadening services for those populations. I am wondering, uh, since the pandemic, we have seen a huge raise in sexual and domestic violence. Uh, and like, especially I see that those lines are for women, right? So a lot of women uh, saying that, yes, they're being abused uh, during the pandemic because they have to live with their perpetrators. So I wonder if you have seen or like if your study touches on that for men as well, like if they're experiencing more domestic violence as well during the pandemic. Right, so I haven't seen any specific statistical figures, but I have come across a couple of things uh, related to what you're talking about. 
So the, the Center for Men and Families used to have one peer support program before COVID. They meet once a week, they maybe had uh, 12 men attending. Uh, when COVID started, they immediately pretty much had to jump to three peer support groups in a matter of weeks because they had so many more men reaching out. And now I think they said they're servicing between 40 and 50 men um, in a week in those three peer support groups. So we can see, while not a solid statistic, there was an upturn in the number of men reaching out for their services in the greater Toronto area, um, which is concerning because of we know that men are very unlikely to reach out to these types of services. So if we see this upturn, then we know there's a lot more men who are probably experiencing this right now with the current situation that are not reaching out for help. Um, it's also difficult because you know you can't leave the house, so it's hard to go attend things. So a lot of these services have started to switch to digital services, which in a way is good because it broadens the reach that they can get. So they started seeing people coming in from different areas of Canada to attend their peer support um, because it's over Zoom. So they're allowed to, they're able to reach more geographic locations and service a greater area of people, but we still don't have very many people stepping up and reaching forward despite the fact that there's an indication that there are more men um, experiencing more severe abuse uh, in kind of this COVID era that we're in right now. And, and I think that geography um, is often a very underestimated fact um, in dealing with a lot of politically sensitive issues, because I know you've mentioned that a number of these institutions exist within the Toronto area. But we have to, have to keep in mind as well that there are many Canadians who do not live in the greater Toronto area and perhaps do not have access to the resources since that, those organizations don't exist in the areas in which they live. Have you found, is there any a difference between uh, urban and rural cases and how domestic violence uh, victims in the countryside have perhaps less access to available resources? Right, so the Center for Men and Families is the only resources that I've found in the greater Toronto area, but also in terms of London, that's specific for men. So within this region as well, that's the only one that I've been able to locate. And that's including, you know, if you go up to Thunder Bay or something like that, or even out uh, to the coast of the prairies, there's still not any other services that are specifically directed for men. Um, so with that being said, people who live in rural areas have even less access to, I mean, a any type of healthcare services generally and types of social services, but even more so they don't have access to the singular service in this area that is specifically for advertised for men to access. Um, now, with that being said, there's also some other factors in rural areas that tend to play in. Um, people in rural areas generally live in more tight-knit communities, and men in those areas generally feel a little bit more hesitant to speak up about issues in general because they're worried that, you know, more people are going to find out, or if you're in an area that emphasizes more of that heteronormative masculine ideal, which we see more in rural areas as well, um, it's even more uncomfortable for you to reach out and speak out about your views. And I've read a couple studies that talked about that um, on this issue in the American context, but there's very little literature on this issue in general that has been researched in the Canadian context. So I'm kind of extrapolating here from the States to Canada, but I assume the trends are probably somewhat similar. Yeah, so just over the course of this discussion, it, it looks like it's kind of an issue that's um, contributed by or to by multiple factors. So it seems like, you know, a lot of men may be less willing to seek help. Um, there may not be many resources if they do want to seek help. 
Um, and there's that issue or that phenomenon of, you mentioned before how, you know, it's not typically physical abuse. A lot of times it's emotional. So it may be, you know, harder to recognize. Um, so kind of confounding with all of these factors, um, are there any strategies or ways that loved ones of victims could, you know, maybe recognize that um, some of their loved ones are going through this or, or any potential ways to communicate with them about this? Um, in terms of strategies, one of the biggest things you can do is, is check in on people, right? And honestly and genuinely ask people how they're doing and be aware of changes in behavior. So, you know, if somebody has started, sort of stopped interacting with their social circles or seems really off, just talking to them about that and seeing what's going on can be really helpful. That's not to say the person is going to tell you what's going on, but being aware of that could be a, a hint that something else is there and that maybe you need to take steps to support that person. Um, but it's hard to do that. You know, it, the only person who can come out and seek help for what's going on in their life or the abuse in their life is the person who is being abused. Nobody can force them to come forward. So the best thing we can do is create an environment that is open and honest and welcoming and non-judgmental for these people to come forward. That's one of the biggest things. You know, men feel emasculated by their abuse and they fear being judged or re-victimized when they come forward. And like you said, there's a lot of different factors. There's masculinity factors at play. There's social perceptions and traditional perceptions of intimate partner violence that are at play. There, when men are finally able to recognize their abuse, there's the lack of services. And when men do access those services, sometimes they're referred to perpetrator organizations instead of victim services. Or sometimes they're just not believed by uh, the services they are approaching because they're assumed to be a perpetrator instead of a survivor or because there's no marks of physical abuse. So we have a lot of confounding variables that come together to make this a really difficult issue to tackle. But the biggest thing we can do is just be non-judgmental and open about it and create that awareness and conversation around that issue. And if, if there was a takeaway message, that would be it, right? Is, is this creation of, a, of, a, of an environment in which everyone can speak their mind freely about um, the experience in which um, they've, uh, they've endeavored with. Now, we're almost out of time, Xavier. Um, in, in regards to COVID, obviously, we've, we've, we've noticed that um, statistics are showing that um, domestic violence uh, cases are rising because people can't leave the house, you know, they're feeling a bit restrictive. Do you think that there are restrictions on the environment we can create that sort of inclusive environment due to the virus? Or are, are we becoming um, more creative and more innovative in the ways we can continue to create this environment for people, regardless of whether we're in a global pandemic or not? I would say a little bit of both. Um, it's difficult to create in-person things where people are going to pick up on the nuances, right? Pick up on that you're not your usual self or that maybe something else is going on or your mood shifted. So that's hard. And it's hard to reach out to people in that aspect. But on the other hand, we're learning how to move these services digitally and make it so people can access them no matter where they are and what's going on. And I think in that aspect, it's really great on an inclusivity standpoint. You know, we're reaching more people and having more people access services because of this kind of digital uh, digital age, um, especially with the pandemic going on that's forced us to, to change those services. So it's a double-edged sword, I think is the best way I can put it. 
yeah i th i think and i i think that's that's a great note to end off of um thank you so much for being on the show um it's been really informative and we hope that the listeners can take something away from what as well this has been gradcast the official radio show and podcast of the society of graduate students at western university i've been your host liam clifford and my co-host was francesco colissimo we've been speaking with xavier borsato and this episode was produced by laura baina if you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a good night.